From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Australia is one of just a handful of countries around the world that have legislated in favour of euthanasia. Every Australian state has now legalised voluntary assisted dying, and the Northern Territory and the ACT are expected to follow after the federal government granted them the freedom to legislate. But that situation would have been hard to imagine when Andrew Denton first joined the campaign for voluntary assisted dying. Known for his penetrating television interviews, Andrew found a debate where progress had been stymied and the voices of those affected the most, the dying, weren't being heard. Today, we revisit our conversation with voluntary assisted dying campaigner Andrew Denton on how to change a debate, take on misinformation and the voices that really changed the law across Australia. This episode was first released on January 9 of this year. It's Friday, April 7. Andrew, first of all, welcome 7am. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Ruby. Nice to be here. I wanted to start by asking you about what's happened recently in New South Wales, because I know that's your home state and that was the last state in Australia to legalise voluntary assisted dying that happened back in May. It hasn't come into effect yet, but should in a few months' time. So after years of campaigning, what was that moment like for you? Uh, It was brilliant on many levels because it had been such a long road and because New South Wales probably had the fiercest resistance to this law. If we pass this bill, the legacy of this parliament will be to open a door that no one can close. That is not the future we should want for New South Wales. But as it has been in all the other states, I think all of us who've campaigned for this issue felt very strongly The ghosts in the room, uh, including my own father, people who had suffered as they were dying because such a law wasn't in place. At the end of my life, I'm going to be suffocating. I'm going to be drowning because my lungs are simply not going to be working anymore. And no one else can tell me to keep suffering that. And to see them and many others campaigning for this law and knowing the suffering they'd been through. It may be sad that this law could have been passed in New South Wales five years earlier, but there were a couple of MPs who went back on their word and it didn't happen. Mm. And you mentioned your father, and I know that your connection to this issue began around the time of his death, and he died, I think, quite painfully and and without the option of, of euthanasia. Do you mind taking me back as much as you feel you want to today to tell me about his death and and how that shaped the questions that you began asking about euthanasia? Yeah, Dad was uh, 67 and he'd been in ill health for some time and essentially uh, his system collapsed. So he was taken to our local hospital who did the best job they could do. I, I don't have any complaints against them, but it was indicative of why you have an assisted dying law because he was given all the medications and... It was many years before we spoke about it, actually, because it's very traumatizing and you don't really know what to do with what you've just witnessed. But um, his last three days were painful. He was threshing and moaning and it it didn't look like a peaceful end at all. So when I I hear, as I have heard down the years, doctors argue, oh, we've got powerful drugs that can deal with everything at the end of life. I know for a fact that's not true. Mm. And so after he died, how did your campaign start? I had no inkling or intention that uh, this was going to take over my life and really 
almost become my full-time work. So uh, to cut a long story short, I was asked to present a speech at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne called The Die-Gribble Argument. And without really thinking about it, I said, look, I'll do it on euthanasia. But I didn't want to just turn up as, quote-unquote, a celebrity with an opinion. So I thought, if I'm going to talk about this, it's a big issue I'm going to go and research it. So I spent the next year at my own expense. I went off to an anti-euthanasia convention and I, and I was deluged with all these arguments against, which were quite confronting. What I basically found is the arguments didn't hold water and, and most of the facts were distorted or plain wrong or questionable. So I saw an unfair fight. Those that needed this law People who were terminally ill, families who'd been through terrible trauma, they didn't really have a voice and they were not physically or in many cases emotionally capable to be heard in the corridors of power, whereas those against were very powerful institutions, most particularly the Catholic Church, also the Anglican Church, also many of our peak medical bodies. And I thought, well, I'm going to bring in some professionals, people who are good at communicating, people who are good at politics, and try and balance up the fight. And so once you gathered this information and started campaigning for voluntary assisted dying legislation, what kind of blowback did you begin to receive? And and was there a moment when you realised what you were up against and that this was going to be a, a difficult and long-running fight? Uh, you know, they always say there's two things you should never see being made. One is a sausage and the other is legislation. Where it became really clear to me that this was a very difficult fight, so the first state I got involved with was in South Australia in 2016. Their parliament had debated this issue something like 14 times, I think, and we just failed to get it over the line. And what I saw was how powerful forces, but particularly powerful medical forces, I saw some senior palliative care doctors go to MPs and tell them untruths about what was happening at the end of life, and I saw the then state's attorney general, who was supposedly going to vote for this, literally at the last minute crossed the floor and voted against it and basically condemned the bill to fail. So, I mean, look, it's politics. It's it's how it works. But it was real eye-opener. And what I realized was we have two approaches to campaigning with Go Gentle. One is the debate is lost until it's won. So never, ever assume, unless somebody says it to your face or says it in public, that their vote is locked in. And our second motto is no stone unturned, no turd unstoned, which basically means every bit of bullshit, every piece of misinformation, always challenge it, always chase it down, and always make sure the information we're giving is credible, peer-reviewed, and can be proven. They would trot out lots and lots of arguments, but probably the main ones were that palliative care, which, by the way, is brilliant in this country, I think it's rated second or third in the world, the palliative care could deal with all end-of-life pain and suffering. The second one was a lot of information, misinformation about what was happening overseas. The main one was, oh, look what's happened in Europe. Laws that started for the terminally ill are now for all kinds of conditions. Even basic research would have told you that the laws as they are written in Europe weren't just written for people who are terminally ill. So they would run many, many lines to try and make people scared. They would use phrases like suicide contagion that these laws encourage more people to commit suicide. And the evidence on that has been so massively debunked, I hardly know where to start. But they ran dozens and dozens of arguments. What I refer to as FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt. If you can sow one seed of FUD, you're going to get a harvest of hesitation and you'll end up with not this bill. Mm. And do you remember the first person who you managed to change the mind of? 
Well, that's a good question. I think it was more a case, not so much of changing minds, because often I found that people come to this debate, it's either their life experiences inform them that, yes, there absolutely must be this law because they've seen someone die badly, or their life experience, they may have a very strong religious upbringing, which says this law is completely unacceptable. So the people I think we were able to have most influence on were those who weren't sure, and they might not have been sure on a couple of levels. A big part of our job was to connect them with experts and others who could give them good information. The other reason they were unsure was just electoral maths, particularly the case in Victoria, which became the first state to pass this law, and that was a very significant moment in 2017 because it opened the doors for every other state to do the same. But at that time, there were many MPs who had been led to believe by Right to Life and other such groups that to vote for these laws was electoral poison, that they would be preferenced against and they would lose their seat. So uh, we embarked on what I think still stands as the most extensive piece of single-issue research ever undertaken in Australia. And we closely researched 14 electorates, metro, rural, liberal, labour, national. It wasn't push-polling. We weren't seeking an answer to the question that we wanted. We asked really open questions about the legislation that was being proposed and the issue at large. And what came back, and I remember the pollster, who is a very senior pollster who's worked for years at the highest levels, he said, I have never seen research like this in my life. It was off the charts across every constituency in favour of this law. And so that helped some MPs go, OK, I think I'm fine with this. And in fact, when the Victorian election happened after that legislation was passed, Everybody that supported the law openly bar one was returned, and that one who wasn't returned was in a redistributed seat, and all the significant opponents were removed from Parliament. Mm. Andrew, can you tell me a bit more about the people who are directly impacted? Because many of them gave their voices and, and spoke about what was happening to them and what they were facing at what I think would have been probably the most difficult time in their life. And I think a lot of those people did that in order to try and convince people to change their mind on voluntary assisted dying. And there's probably a lot of people that you could mention here, but I wonder if there's anyone in particular that you could you could talk about. It's, uh, as I referred before to ghosts, it's the thing that I have found most moving, most humbling is sitting alongside people, staying up all night watching parliamentary debates you know, the business of dying of, of illnesses like cancer and worse than cancer is hard. Every bit of it's hard, as you could imagine. And for them to give the last of their precious days and weeks to see a law passed that wasn't going to benefit them was uh, profoundly moving. So, gee, there's so many faces going through my brain right now. Let's go back to South Australia in 2016. A young woman, only in her 30s, called Kylie Monaghan, who had uh, breast cancer which had metastasized, which means it reappeared in all parts of her body. Kylie lived at Port Pirie, and there, there were no bells and whistles about Kylie, and she had agreed to be the human face of our campaign in South Australia. This is Kylie Monaghan, and this is Daryl, the man Kylie chose to marry. And she'd shot an ad for us, and we took it down to show it to her. And my choices. My name is Kylie Monaghan, and this is the Kylie Monaghan Voluntary Euthanasia Bill. Show your support for Kylie and others like her. But we knew that there was a potential when this ad went out, you know, people might harass her. 
that she would be a public figure as she was dying. So we sat in her kitchen, we showed her the ad, and we said, look, Carly, if you don't want to do this, just say so, and we'll never play it. She didn't blink. She just said, yeah, no, do it, do it. Be the Bill. And um, Kylie died, in fact, before that debate ended. But her parents took up the mantle, and, and when the South Australian law passed uh, last year, they were on the steps of Parliament House. You know, the church, and particularly the Catholic Church in this country, is a very powerful institution that's used to walking the corridors of power, and indeed they still do. But I think they completely misunderstood and underestimated what they're up against. Yes, it took a lot of politicians to be able to cross the line, but mostly it's been an extraordinary example of a community movement. Because let me tell you, somebody who's dying or somebody who's watched somebody who's dying in pain is not going to sit there and be bullshitted to and take it quietly. And none of these people were ever going to go away. We'll be back in a moment. The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for the Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, the Saturday Paper, and you'll receive the Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. Andrew, there's no doubt that enormous progress has been made on the issue of voluntary assisted dying. There's now laws in place in every state in Australia that allow it to happen and the territories aren't far behind. But despite that, do you worry that those gains could be wound back, that with a government changing hands in one place, you could see these laws be eroded? Look, the first thing to say is the existence of these laws is in itself a powerful argument for these laws. And what we've seen is an increasing number of uh, doctors and nurses and other medical professionals step forward and become deeply engaged. It is becoming a part of accepted medical practice. But are they under threat? Yes, always. We just saw what happened in America with Roe v. Wade, where 30 years of skillful organization and campaigning by those who had a moral opposition to these laws eventually saw them undone. The minute New South Wales became the sixth and final state to pass this law, the leading Catholic Church front advocacy group against voluntary assisted dying called HOPE announced that it was their purpose from now on to see that these laws were repealed bit by bit, state by state. We know there are politicians, particularly we're seeing in Victoria at the moment, but also in South Australia, we know that uh, Senator Alex Antic, for instance, in South Australia, federal Liberal Senator, has publicly declared it is his aim to drive the moderates out of the South Australian Liberal Party who passed laws like the assisted dying law and to replace them with, quote, God-fearing conservatives. So, yes, I don't think you should ever assume that this kind of social progress 
is locked in merely because it's law. There's a lot you can do when you're in government which doesn't even involve legislation. So yes, uh, these laws will always need to be defended. It's a very, very red line. And you mentioned the important role that doctors and nurses have here in making voluntary assisted dying something that is an accepted medical practice. And I wonder, is that the next big challenge for yourself and for Go Gentle, trying to change people's attitudes and especially the attitudes of people in positions of care? I can't tell you how much respect I have for the doctors and nurses and others who've stepped forward to do this. Uh, And that's part of Go Gentle's job now is to encourage others in the medical profession to consider what these laws are for, to consider what they give to people. And the really interesting thing they've all said is how profoundly it has impacted their practice in that they are dealing with people in an entirely different way. They're people who are dying. There's not a cure they can offer them. But because the laws insist that you really interrogate somebody's request, it's not, I'll write you a prescription and off you go. It's multiple conversations. What they're finding is their connection with these people is far deeper than they've had in other areas of their medical practice. It was interesting, a geriatrician in Victoria said to me, he said, I almost felt a bit ashamed. I realized that unconsciously before this law, when I would speak to people, I would unconsciously ask them questions that I could answer. How's your nausea? How's your pain? I can give you drugs for that. I realized I wasn't asking them those sort of total questions. What's your life like? What does your life feel like? What does it feel like for you? And there may not be an answer to that question other than to offer them a choice. So I do think it will probably take a generation, but when New South Wales law passed, I described it as a revolution in medical end-of-life care. And I think that's right. I think for those doctors and other medical professionals that wish to get involved with this, who are getting involved with this, it is a very different way of looking at people at the end of life than has previously been possible. And just finally, Andrew, I wanted to ask you something that I think you've likely considered at length as you've been doing this work, and that is after meeting so many people who've, who've faced death themselves, what are your thoughts on your own mortality and how are you approaching your own inevitable death? Well, I'm very against death, personally. Um, <laughs> my reflections on mortality are there's no easy way to die. Um, you've still got to say goodbye to your one wild and precious life. And though voluntary assisted dying offers people who are suffering a peaceful and quick and merciful way to go, you still have to die. And that's why I don't have an absolutist view about what's the best way to go. I think there are so many ways in which we can be helped at the end. For many, it's palliative care. For some, it's their spiritual beliefs. For some, it's assisted dying. For some, it's a, a combination of all those things. You know, I look at the courage. That is the single factor that ties all these people together that have used these laws. And they come from every conceivable range of life. What ties them together is their immense courage. I, I, I don't know, Ruby, if I'm going to have the courage to die. However I go, I'm not, I'm not in a hurry. You know, I always think of that Anthony and the Johnsons song and that lyric, I hope there's someone to hold me when I die. I think that is what we all hope for, that when it happens, because it will, that we are surrounded by the people we love and care for. And, you know, I hope there's humour. I hope there's music. Um, I do have a thought for my funeral. I I do want to have a little boombox put in my coffin. So halfway up the aisle, you hear a sort of a thumping and me going, let me out. But that's just me. (laughs) 
That might scare people a little. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ruby. Nice to hold when I'm tired.